It is my honor to introduce Dr. Andrew Prevell today. Uh, Dr. Prevell earned his master's and doctor's degrees from Notre Dame systemic, uh, Systematic Theology and is currently an associate professor in the Department of Theology at Boston College. His published works include Thinking Prayer, Theology and Spirituality Amid the Crisis of Modernity, and Anti-Blackness and Christian Ethics, a volume co-edited with uh, Vincent Lloyd. This afternoon, as part of the Lumen Christi Institute's Black Catholic Initiative, Dr. Prevost will give a lecture on the hope of Exodus and Black and Womanist theology. Please welcome Dr. Andrew Prevost. It's really wonderful to be here in Chicago. Can you all hear me okay? Okay, good. Uh, it's wonderful to be here. Thanks to Michael and Thomas from the Lumen Christi Institute for their invitation. Thanks to Foster for their very kind introduction. Thanks to all of you for, for coming out for this lecture today. I want to begin by singing a verse from one of my favorite spirituals. But I'm not much of a soloist, a uh, solo artist. So I would invite you all to please join in if you know the words. And we're just going to do one verse to kick us off, okay? Go down, Moses, way down in Egypt land, tell old Pharaoh. To let my people go. So this is a beautiful, poignant hymn that comes to us from the creative minds of the African-American people who were enslaved in this country. And it makes me reflect on the meaning of Christianity. What is Christianity really all about? Is it, as this song suggests, the story of a fugitive people? Is it the story of a mighty divine liberator who delivers an enslaved community from their bondage? Is it a story that condemns imperial domination of all kinds and vindicates the oppressed? I hope that it is, but one would not think so if one only heard the Sunday sermons in certain passages of Paul's letters, such as Ephesians 6.5 and Colossians 3.22, which were regularly preached by white Christian ministers in the antebellum and postbellum South. In such sermons, Christianity functioned primarily as a behavioral code requiring obedience to masters and all other authority figures. Its message was one of docility, not one of freedom. These sermons taught countless believing Christians to cite the Bible as justification for their slaveholding practices and other white supremacist uh, cultural features of their society. The American slave system constructed the idea of the Negro as a subhuman class of being, as quote unquote a natural slave on the authority of Aristotle and newly conceived racial mythologies and pseudoscience. 
and as a disposable object of property, production, reproduction, and abuse. Perhaps everyone here will concede without further argument that this social context uh, badly skewed the meaning of Christianity, distorting it into a weapon of unspeakable cruelty against black persons, families, and communities. In any case, it is not my purpose here to argue this point since it has been well demonstrated by, by many authors elsewhere. So I'm not going to try to tell you or prove to you that all of this is bad and a distortion of Christianity. All right. That's a given. Okay. So my aim here is to probe the conditions for a better interpretation of Christianity going forward amid the ongoing racial crises and injustices that we have in the 21st century, which belong to what Sadia Hartman calls the afterlife of slavery. The possibility of such a better interpretation of Christianity is thinkable for us today because there is already a robust Christian theological tradition which demands that we think it and shows us how to do so. A tradition inaugurated by black Christian slaves who despite being subjected to coercive practices of non-education and miseducation, managed to discover another meaning of Christianity buried deep in the stories, images, and songs of their living faith. These resilient material symbols of theological wisdom could not be made to communicate merely the politically crafted message of obedience to masters preached by apologists of American slaveocracy. Something more was here, a mystery and a promise deeper than words. Christianity harbored a hope of exodus. It whispered the dream of a divinely orchestrated escape from the death-dealing circumstances of the present order of things. It inspired a communal prayer for healing and freedom such as the one which reverberates in the slave spiritual go down Moses, which we all sung so beautifully together at the start. Prayers and dreams and songs and struggles such as these were the inchoate beginnings of ways of thinking that would be academically formalized in the latter half of the 20th century under the headings of black theology and womanist theology. Together, these theological movements assert that Whatever one's supposed racial identity might be, one must work to receive Christianity as the slaves would have received it, to encounter the God to whom they prayed, and to inhabit the logic and pathos of their struggle. More is at stake here than uh, just a local enculturation of Christianity, as important as that remains. Black and womanist theology represent the possibility of freeing Christianity as such from a white supremacist distortion, which has had devastating consequences on the entire world. To be clear, I believe that the most fundamental question here is whether one affirms the full human dignity of those multitudes of human beings who were shackled, raped, and murdered simply because of their darkly colored bodies and African pedigrees. Doing so is an absolute moral imperative, as absolute as the respect owed to any human being whatsoever. And this demand of justice does not strictly depend on Christian commitments. So you don't have to be Christian 
to understand that this is an important moral demand. Such an affirmation of black life as a real human life also, though, happens to be a key ingredient to a better contemporary interpretation of Christianity. In short, overcoming white supremacy is not only a matter of cultural accommodation to a select racial group, it is also a moral mandate for the entire world and a theological mandate for the entire church. In the following investigation into the interrelated traditions of black theology and womanist theology, I take as my guiding theme their reception of the story of Exodus, the story of the liberation of the Hebrews from their enslavement in Egypt, including black and womanist uses of this story as a prefiguration of Christ's salvific work in the past, present, and future. I begin this investigation with a look at James Cone's foundational treatment of these biblical motifs in his black liberation theology. Then I turn to Eddie Glaude Jr.'s uh, pragmatist reinterpretation, which shows the value of the Exodus story not only for Christianity, but also for a secular politics of black national identity. The juxtaposition of Cone and Glaude demonstrates that the hope of Exodus may be shared across religious and non-religious participants in the black freedom struggle. Beyond Glaude, I consider other challenges and complications in the black and womanist reception of Exodus. Dolores Williams, wo uh, her womanist turn to Hagar's experience of God and the wilderness opens up a complementary focus on survival and quality of life. Kelly Brown Douglas's confrontation with white supremacist misuses of Exodus reveals the need for a very care careful interpretation of the story in connection with Christological themes of solidarity and kenosis. Finally, Willie James Jennings' emphasis on the displacing effects of the modern racial imaginary suggests a need to interweave theological interpretations of exodus and exile. These diverse arguments, which I'll unpack more, so don't worry if you missed them <laughs> just now. Uh, these diverse arguments reveal complexities that must be addressed. However, throughout their twists and turns, they do not so much undermine as enhance the prospects for a rediscovery of the true liberative meaning of Christianity. So in my first section, I look at James Cone. It is important to recognize that Cone's famous proclamation that, Je that Jesus is black stems from a particular way of reading the New Testament in continuity with the old. His argument is redolent of certain anti-Marcionite trends in patristic exegesis, for example, in Irenaeus of Lyon's uh, Against the Heresies. Both Cone and Irenaeus affirm the unity of the two testaments. Cone's point is not that Jesus of Nazareth belonged to a black race descended from Africa. He acknowledges that this assertion would be somewhat anachronistic, as would even more so any suggestion that Jesus was racially white. Rather, Cone's point in affirming Jesus' blackness is to say that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection forever continue the liberating work of God that was originally revealed in the Hebrews' deliverance from slavery. In today's social context of anti-black racism, therefore, 
Cohn concludes that Jesus remains present in a hidden yet historically real way in the suffering of black people and as the incarnate promise and hoped-for agent of their freedom. The same God revealed in the Old and New Testaments is active now. That, for, for Cohn, is the meaning of Jesus' blackness. Cohn maintains that, quote, the Exodus was the decisive event in Israel's history because through it Yahweh was revealed as the savior of an oppressed people, end quote. This event of liberation forms the basis of the Sinai Covenant, the giving of the Ten Commandments, and remains a constant point of reference in the biblical prophets' denunciation of social injustice in Jerusalem and in their proclamation of God's ongoing historical involvement with the people of Israel. The Exodus was an action of God in the world, which according to Cohn's interpretation, and that of black Christian slaves who sung, Go Down Moses, reveals God as a powerful victor over oppressive slaveholding regimes. Cohn argues that Jesus manifests this same liberating God in a new way. Quote, this is what the incarnation means. God and Christ comes to the weak and the helpless and becomes one with them, taking their condition of oppression as his own and thus transforming their slave existence into a liberated existence, end quote. Cohn highlights Jesus' ministry to the poor and outcast as proof of his continuity with the law and the prophets. But Cohn also sees that there is a new element here, quote, disclosed in the cross and the resurrection. While God's freedom for the poor is not less than the liberation of slaves from bondage, it is more than that historical freedom, end quote. In part, Cohn suggests that this more, this difference between the two testaments, has to do with a universal accessibility of liberation at all times in history and for every people. Quote, the resurrection is God's conquest of oppression and injustice, disclosing that the divine freedom revealed in Israel's history is now available to the whole world, end quote. In another respect, however, this more of the New Testament experience of liberation has to do with an eschatological victory over death, which transcends the bounds of history. Quote, there is included in liberation the not yet, a vision of a new heaven and a new earth, end quote. Although Cohn affirms a traditional Christian eschatology, including an afterlife beyond history, a new heaven and a new earth, he believes that the divine promise of rescue from captivity in history does not disappear as long as this historical world lasts. It is not superseded or replaced, but rather incorporated or recapitulated. The power that God has to free the enslaved is shown in Jesus to be greater, not lesser than previously conceived. Therefore, blacks enduring slavery or its aftermath can sing hymns in praise of Jesus, just as they do in praise of Moses, and with the same thinly veiled liberative meaning. So another famous hymn that Cone cites is, Weep no more, Martha, weep no more, Mary. Jesus, rise from the dead, O happy morning. Is this promised historical and eschatological liberation in Christ offered only to black people? And is it offered only to them insofar as they are oppressed? Cone says no. This gift of liberation is promised to everyone. But the freedom of black people and all of the oppressed 
is the condition for its possibility. It's the prerequisite. This is the reason why Cohn resists fellow black theologian J. Diotis Roberts' proposed balancing of the goals and liberation of liberation and reconciliation. Cohn argues that Roberts' more ironic sounding approach is the wrong way to understand the relationship between liberation and reconciliation, because reconciliation, that is, a peaceful vision in which all are united with each other and with God and love, is only possible on the basis of the liberation of the oppressed and as its product. Quote, that is why liberation must be expressed in uncompromising language and actions, for only then can the conditions be created for a true reconciliation, end quote. The idea that we should all get along is not a realistic option until the slaves are set free, the hungry are fed, the sick receive health care, the strangers are welcomed, and the unjustly wealthy find the grace to repent of their rapacious exploitation of the poor and to die to their former selves in Christ. Section two, uh, I turn now to Eddie Glaude. Cohn's black theology of liberation has faced resistance, not only among white Christian theologians who are reluctant to embrace his demands for radical conversion, but also among certain black scholars of religion who prefer a more pragmatist than confessional style of argument. Instead of contending on the basis of biblical testimony that God is a liberator of the oppressed, as Cohn does, many scholars of this pragmatist stripe, such as Cornell West, Victor Anderson, and Anthony Penn, mainly inquire into the positive and negative social effects of various Christian symbols, stories, and beliefs prioritizing the pragmatic question about how these symbols function over the theological exposition of their meaning within a presupposed deposit of divine revelation. Eddie Glaude Jr. Begins, uh, belongs to this camp as well. In his book called Exodus with an exclamation point, um, he interprets the biblical story of Exodus by focusing on its utility and the formation of a black national political identity, which would be based on black communities' solidarity and suffering and struggle rather than their genetics, their geography, or any formal sense of statehood. He brackets the question of whether there is any real divine liberator at work in this black nation-making process. So for Glaude, uh, he's taking this theological story and translating it in a way that can appeal to blacks whether or not they believe that God is, is a reality. Claude's approach to Exodus is noteworthy for a couple of reasons. First, it illustrates that a secularization of theological concepts, as Carl Schmitt might call it, is part of the way that the biblical Exodus narrative has been retrieved in African-American communities fighting against racism. This is sometimes overlooked if we assume all black people are religious. That's not true. Some are secular. This secularization may trouble some theologians, including some who are sympathetic to Cone and who are committed to praising the living God of their faith. However, uh, to some readers skeptical of religion, Glaude's prag pragmatist interpretation may offer an attractive option. Glaude's book helps one see that a black politics consonant with Christian faith and a divine liberator 
may constitute a positive mediation of the moral content of Christianity, even where explicit Christian commitments subside. Such a pragmatist account, then, may simultaneously threaten and extend the significance of the Christian story of divine liberation. Now, one way that we see this happening is through Glaude's practice of quotation. His book is, is filled with many quotes from black Christian sources that we might otherwise have lost sight of. Uh, his many references to these Christian theological texts, which he interprets in a pragmatist and somewhat secularizing way, have the intended or unintended effect of keeping the original meaning of these stories somewhat alive for Christians and non-Christians alike. For example, when he analyzes David Walker's 1829 theological Jeremiah called Appeal to the Colored Citizens of the World, Glaude quotes the following powerful lines. So this is Glaude quoting Walker. Though our cruel oppressors and murderers may, if possible, treat us more cruel than Pharaoh did the children of Israel, yet the God of the Ethiopians has been pleased to hear our moans in consequence of our oppression, and the day of our redemption from abject wretchedness draweth near, when we shall be enabled in the most extended sense of the word to stretch forth our hand to the Lord our God. End quote. Glaude is interested in the way that such ideas help to form African Americans into a people or a nation. But it remains difficult for me as a Christian to look past David Walker's original theological insight here when I read it in uh, Glaude's text, namely that the God of the Hebrews is the God of the Ethiopians too, that this very God hears the cries of the oppressed, condemns their oppressors and murderers, and will soon bring them a day of redemption. The religious and secular meanings of the Exodus are communicated simultaneously through Glaude's text. Section 3, turning now to Dolores Williams. Dolores Williams is a pioneer of womanist theology, which is a way of doing theology that prioritizes the experiences of black women and other women of color. The term womanist comes from Alice Walker, a novelist and essayist who does not profess Christian faith, but whose works perceptively describe experiences of the divine and the sacred in human life. I'm thinking especially of the color purple here. In the hands of Christian theologians such as Dolores Williams, the term womanist takes on additional theological meanings that build on and transcend Alice Walker's original formulation. Williams develops a hermeneutic of scripture that in contrast to Cone's, does not concentrate on the Exodus, but rather, quote, on the story of a female slave of African descent who was forced to be a surrogate mother, end quote. This is Hagar's story from Genesis chapter 16 and chapter 21. Williams' Christology is grounded in her reading of these two Old Testament passages about Hagar. Like Cone and Irenaeus, she keeps the Old and New Testaments unified in her interpretation, but she has a different Old Testament starting point. Williams is interested in the biblical character of Hagar for many reasons. Because Hagar is a woman, because she is 
is enslaved. Because she is used by Abraham and Sarah as a sexual and maternal surrogate, a particular form of oppression that Williams finds to be characteristic of black women's experience before and after slavery. Because Hagar is of African descent, which means two things for Williams. One, she is not a, mil- a member of the chosen people of Israel. And two, she is a bearer of African cultural wisdom and a symbol of the value of other world cultures outside of the West. And because generations of African-American Christian women have found solace by identifying with the story of Hagar. All of these reasons are very important. But the one I want to emphasize here is that William suggests that Hagar reveals another way that God interacts with oppressed peoples in history. God does not merely promise liberation. God also becomes present in the quotidian struggles for survival and quality of life, even while oppression lasts. Reading the New Testament in light of Hagar's experience and all that it represents leads Williams to resist the Pauline idea developed by Origen, Anselm, Calvin, and others that God saves us primarily through Christ's death, a soteriological doctrine which strikes her as too connected with an oppressive system of surrogacy, where Christ would be a kind of surrogate figure. Williams prefers the synoptic gospels, and particularly their depiction of Jesus' earthly ministry. Quote, Jesus came to show humans life, to show redemption through a perfect ministerial vision of writing relationships, end quote. The difference in Williams and Cohn's Christologies may have something to do not only with their genders and their preferred Old Testament starting points, but also with their affinities for a Schleiermacherian theology of God consciousness on the one hand and a Bardian dialectical theology of the divine word on the other. Yet despite their differences, Williams does not dismiss Cohn's project of a black theology of liberation. On the contrary, she sees her work as complementary to it. She suggests that the slaves had two pressing theological questions. Quote, what has God to say and do about our community's liberation? And what has God to say and do about our community's survival? End quote. She concludes, quote, my womanist claim is that for the slaves, Moses and Jesus and God's action through them was the answer to the former question. Hence, Cohn got that part right. And Hagar and Ishmael and God's response to them was the way the slaves answered the latter question. This is something that Cohn didn't emphasize. Ultimately, Williams thinks it is valid and necessary to understand Christ's salvific work in relation to both Moses and Hagar, and Hagar because this is how the slaves teach us to understand it. Now, stepping out on a limb, I would like to suggest that perhaps it would be helpful to turn to Harriet Tubman as a potential bridge figure here between black and womanist theology. After reaching the North for the first time, the former slave Harriet Tubman reflects, quote, I was free, but there was no one to welcome me in the land of freedom. I was a stranger in a strange land, and my home, after all, was down in the old cabin quarter with the old folks and my brothers and sisters. But to this solemn resolution I came. I was free, and they should be free also. 
I would make a home for them in the north, and the Lord helping me, I would bring them all here. Oh, how I prayed then, lying all alone on the cold, damp ground. Oh, dear Lord, I said, I ain't got no friend but you. Come to my help, Lord, for I am in trouble. End quote. Alone and in trouble in the north, having just escaped from slavery, but still thrown into an oppressive circumstance, she's, she turns to prayer, calling on God as her only friend. She reflects, she, she relies on a sense of divine presence and intimacy to help her survive in a land of freedom that remains, because of its isolating inhospitality, a strange land, a wilderness. And yet she forms a solemn resolution that her friends and family should be free also. Tubman is an icon of both liberation and survival. She is a black woman in the cold desert of the north, a Hagar, and yet the liberator of a nation, a Moses. And why not also an altar Christus, another Christ, in the tradition of the great martyrs and saints of the church? In section four now, I turn to Kelly Brown Douglas. In the grim aftermath of Trayvon Martin's murder, Trayvon was a defenseless 17-year-old black adolescent shot to death by an armed vigilante named George Zimmerman on February 22nd, 2012. And especially in the aftermath of Zimmerman's acquittal on July 13, 2013, many black scholars and activists wrestled afresh with the question of whether black life in the United States is really respected, whether more than a century and a half after the end of slavery we are really free, whether our lives really matter, as the slogan goes. Kelly Brown Douglas's Stand Your Ground is part of this wrestling. That's the title of her book. Douglas peers behind the Stand Your Ground law, which initially seemed to shield Zimmerman's murderous conduct from legal penalty. And she looks behind this law to the violent cultural history of Anglo-Saxon exceptionalism and manifest destiny that informs it. In the process, she uncovers a troubling fact about the modern reception of the Exodus story. It was cited regularly by black slaves and by white supremacists, and it lends itself to this dual, even contradictory usage. Quote, as much as this Exodus story is a story of moving out of bondage into freedom, it is also a story of invading an occupied land, end quote. The, the same biblical narrative that gives rise to black liberation theology, therefore, also undergirds the particular style of stand your ground American white supremacy that leaves black bodies, brown bodies, Native American bodies dead uh, on the streets, on the land, um, where, wherever they are killed. So Douglas acknowledges that Dolores Williams had already perceived the problem uh, through her analysis of Hagar. Just as Hagar was not included in the covenantal promises granted to Israel, so too the Canaanites, who already occupied the promised land of Exodus chapter 3, verse 17, were vulnerable to a violent, supposedly divinely willed conquest. 
All that was required to repeat this terror in modernity was a myth of white racial superiority provided by a strangely enthusiastic rereading of Tacitus's Germania and by an implausible claim on the part of those identifying themselves with the Anglo-Saxons in Tacitus's text to be a new chosen people akin to the biblical people of Israel. These ingredients have spelled disaster for blacks, Native Americans, and other people of color in this country. Yet Douglas stresses that slaves receive the Exodus story differently. Focusing on the condition of being oppressed and the hope of freedom, and decidedly not on the promise of taking over an occupied territory and ruling it as a divinely exalted race. Douglas writes, quote, the point of identification with the Exodus story for the enslaved did not lie in their exceptionalist claim to be the chosen people of God. Rather, the identification was based on the recognition that their historical condition was the same as that of the Israelites, a condition contrary to the freedom of God. So they reasoned, if God freed the Israelites, God would free them, end quote. How much hangs then not merely on the biblical story itself, but on the manner in which it is interpreted, and by whom and for what reasons or for what motives. Like Cohn and Williams, Douglas connects the meaning of the Old Testament with the New. In particular agreement with Cohn, she argues that, quote, the Jesus story serves as a new exodus, end quote. However, her interpretation of this connection is unique. She associates the movement of exodus uh, in Jesus with his uh, with, with a Jewish male Jesus' solidaristic entrance into conversation with a Samaritan woman, a scene narrated in John chapter 5. On Douglas's reading, the Samaritan woman represents a condition of racial, economic, religious, and gendered marginalization, which Jesus canonically embraces, not clinging to the privileged status afforded him by his divine origin or even his membership in a chosen people, but going out to welcome and liberate the stranger. In his exodus from Judea into the world of the Samaritan woman, quote, Jesus frees her from the social religious constructs that deemed her an offense and restores her sacred identity, end quote. According to Douglas, Jesus' self-emptying exodus continues in his death on the cross, which she understands as, quote, a triumph over all that denies life, end quote. And it continues today as Jesus becomes present and those black persons like Trayvon who live and die with racialized bodies targeted by a violent white supremacist culture. Alluding to Matthew 25, Douglas concludes, quote, the Matthaean question today might be, but Lord, where did we see you dying and on the cross? And Jesus would answer, on a Florida sidewalk, at a Florida gas station, on a Michigan porch, on a street in North Carolina. As you did it to one of these young black bodies, you did it to me, end quote. In section five, I turn to Willie Jennings. Jennings argues that race exerts power over our bodies. It does so not only by changing and managing their places, whether these are understood to be physical or metaphorical. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, stay in your place. Um, 
but also by altering the very ways that identity is constructed in relation to place. This is one of the central insights in his impressive genealogical and theological study called the Christian imagination. If the, if the biblical Exodus story tells the tale of Hebrews moving triumphantly from a place of bondage in Egypt to another of freedom in Canaan, the transatlantic slave trade tracks a very different type of movement. Peoples from Africa are displaced violently into the Americas, transported from a condition of indigenous dwelling and community to one of precarious exile, indeed from life to death. Race as we know it now, race conceived in black and white, race conceived in the legacies of anti-black racism, was produced in this displacement and by means of it. The violent shift here is not only from one geographical location to another. The basis of identity moves symbolically but very powerfully from rootedness in a particular land to the color of one's body. Quote, without place as the articulator of identity, human skin was asked to fly solo and speak for itself, end quote. The transition from place-based to race-based identity occurs in this terrifying claustrophobic site or non-site of the slave ship. Quote, the wooden world of the ship delivered them, African slaves, such as Ola da Equiano, into the colonial world. But first it served as a replacement. The ship replaced the land by reformulating ecologies of identity around bodies, as it were, floating in space that is, bodies floating on the undulating waves of the sea. This new basis of identity, which is all about how our bodies look instead of about the land from which we come, inaugurates a state of perpetual exile. The passage to racial identity is not merely a displacement to a foreign land, it is a condition of estrangement from land as such, or more fundamentally, from the possibility of being rooted or grounded in a life-giving way. Not only blacks, but also Jews and many other communities find themselves racialized and thereby exiled in this violent post-colonial world. Meanwhile, white identity is imagined as a constructor of spaces, as a new godlike creative and governing power presiding sovereignly over the whole colonized and racially subjugated globe. Whiteness usurps the invisible place of the creator God. It pretends to reign on high. It fashions itself as a new kind of deity, a new kind of creator. The exilic symbolism in Jennings' argument might suggest, as Second Isaiah does, that the exodus must now be lived in a new way, not as a flight toward an unknown destination, but as a sort of homecoming. So I suggest that Second Isaiah might be Jennings' Old Testament starting point. On this account, black liberation would not entail a permanent fugitive existence, but rather a return to one's own native place. But where might this be exactly? Jennings does not have a back to Africa agenda. He is not a Garveyite. On the contrary, when it comes to offering proposals for how to address the problem of race and modernity, he develops a biblically oriented Christian uh, theological response. 
His answer is to return humbly to the God of Israel, who is revealed most, most fully in Christ. He contends that Israel is constituted most radically not as a political state or as an ethnic group, but as a covenantal community formed in relation to and in utter dependence on the divine word. Jennings reads the event of Exodus, particularly the ten plagues, as a powerful divine action by which God breaks the hold of a particular oppressive land, slaveholding Egypt, on the identity of God's chosen people, and frees them at Sinai to embrace a new kind of identity rooted in the place, the symbolic place of the covenant itself. Quote, this God enfolds the holy people in the truth that Yahweh, not the land, is the giver of life. Yahweh, not the land, defines their identity, end quote. Although Jennings recommends a modern post-exilic return to Israel, he does not mean this in a Zionist, statist, or racial sense, but rather as a faithful act of rededicating oneself to a relationship with a creator and redeemer revealed in Israel's covenantal history, including its Christological recapitulation. And he cites Irenaeus on that as well. So we're seeing a kind of recapitulation in all of these sources. Jennings recognizes that most who are called to do this are not Jews, but rather Gentiles. They must therefore turn to Jesus as the one who shows Gentiles how to enter into the unbroken covenantal relationship that God maintains with Israel, including not merely with uh, Christians, but also with uh, Jews living today. Jennings does not think that either whites or blacks ought to style themselves as a new chosen people. He thinks Jews are the only chosen people. In this respect, he firmly rejects a supersessionist trope of the sort of black nationalism analyzed by Glaude and perhaps also countenanced to some degree by Cohn. So Jennings doesn't want black people to view themselves as a new Israel. Instead, Jennings argues that both body-identified peoples, so-called whites and blacks, must learn to live from a different conception of their identity as situated or placed in God's election of Israel. This is the true ground. For white people, this means forsaking the idolatrous self-glorification that comes with modern white supremacist social imaginaries. For black people, this entails learning to see themselves as more than what the slave ship produced. For everyone, it means entering into a deeper dialogue with their Jewish brothers and sisters and seeking new spaces constituted by a new, quote, relational practice, a new cultural politic, a new communion, and a new reality of kinship, end quote. Jennings' vision is more interracial and perhaps even post-racial though he doesn't really like that word, than the comparable visions of Cohn, Glaude, Williams, and Douglas. Yet his thinking remains focused by the biblical Exodus event, and especially by a constructive reception of it, which connects it not only to Christology, but also to the exilic experience of black slaves in the modern world. This privileged view from the oppressed is what allows him to glimpse, however obscurely, uh, and for the moment only as a desire or a dream or something to imagine, a new space of unlimited conviviality and relationship. So finally to conclude, amid all the details and complexities of the black and womanist theological arguments I have discussed, 
details and complexities that really are crucial. We have to, we have to get into the nitty-gritty here. But amidst all of this, one must not lose sight of the general possibility that all of these sources represent. This is the possibility of rediscovering Christianity with some significant qualifications as the story of a fugitive people, the story of a mighty divine liberator who delivers an enslaved community from their, bot their bondage, a story that condemns imperial domination of all kinds and vindicates the oppressed. This is a story that religious and non-religious participants in the black liberation struggle can appreciate in different ways. This story provides an overarching context of maximal hope within which more provisional forms of survival and quality of life might still be pursued. To be liberative in the truest sense, it must be interpreted in a way that avoids triumphalist, exceptionalist, and supersessionist identities and commitments, and instead prioritizes the imitation of Christ's self-emptying solidarity with the other, with the poor, with a stranger. In the final analysis, the freedom that it promises must not be understood as a freedom from relationship and covenant, but rather as a freedom that can only be realized in their midst. This story has been refined over the last several decades of black and womanist theology. These critical efforts are gifts not only for African-American Christians, but truly for all Christians and all lovers of justice, Christian or otherwise. To the pharaohs of the 21st century, the hard-hearted rulers, the calloused economic elites, those willing to exploit the labor of the racialized underclasses for their own inordinate wealth, or simply to see their vilified bodies be discarded as trash. This story of Exodus, this true Christianity declares, let my people go. Thank you.